This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles or you've got a smartphone or a tablet with you, open to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11. If you started the year with a Bible reading plan that takes you through the Bible, you've noticed there are repeated themes in the Scriptures. Topics that come up again and again and again. 1 Kings is all about another repeated theme. The theme of idolatry. Now, when modern people hear the word idol, most probably think of a carving or a statue that ancient people would bow down to and worship. The problem with that uh, reflexive response is that we in the U.S. don't really do that. At least, I've not witnessed a whole lot of that, where we are bowing down to a statue of a carving that sits on our mantle in our living rooms. So idolatry can be a tricky thing for us to get a hold of because we automatically assume, well, that must not be a problem for me. But idolatry is a more sophisticated concept than that. In Ezekiel 14, God charges the leaders of Israel with setting up idols in their hearts. So idolatry is not just a problem of statues. It's a problem that resides within the heart. 1 Kings 11 demonstrates that so clearly. Let me read. I'm going to read the first 13 verses of 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Though he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him. We'll give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would allow the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts to be pleasing and acceptable to you. 
as we uh, listen to your word to us. We pray this for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to consider this uh, scripture under three uh, aspects today. We're going to look at the root of idolatry, the fruit of idolatry, and the treatment for idolatry. The root of it, the fruit of it, the treatment for it. First, the root of idolatry. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. They were from the nations about which the Lord told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Here's the short of it. Love is at the root of idolatry. More specifically, at the root of idolatry is disordered or misdirected love. We're told Solomon loved many foreign women and he held fast to them in love. These are two verbs used to describe Solomon's affection for these women and these are the same two verbs that God himself used in the book of Deuteronomy to describe what was to be Israel's unswerving allegiance to him. God was to be the object of this kind of loyalty. God was to be the object of this kind of devotion. God was to be the object of this kind of affection. But in Solomon's story, God has been displaced and replaced by foreign women as the primary object of Solomon's affection. So at the root of idolatry is giving to someone or something other than God what only God deserves. It's heaping upon someone or something the love, the devotion, the loyalty that should be reserved for God alone. At the root of idolatry is love. At the root of idolatry is disordered, misdirected love. The Apostle Paul makes the same point in Romans 1. He says, they, human beings, exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and here it is, worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. Worshipped and served. You see how created things have become the object of a devotion and a loyalty and an affection that was meant for God alone. Now, when you think about idolatry along these lines, it shouldn't take too long to figure out how insidious it can be. If idolatry is simply misdirected love, then anything, anything, especially the best things in your life, can become idols. Your marriage, your kids, your career, the causes you like to be involved in, church ministries, they can become the objects of the kind of love, the kind of loyalty, the kind of devotion that is meant for God alone. So, how do I know if those Things are idols in my life. Well, let's look at it on the second heading, the fruit of idolatry. Verse 2, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Now look up here. God is saying misdirected love has effects. It doesn't operate in a vacuum. Misdirected love produces consequences. Put it this way. Your behavior is radically shaped by what you love the most. Your behavior is radically shaped by what you love the most. Your thoughts, your emotions, your actions are radically shaped by what you love the most. If you love the approval of people, then your behavior will reflect that. You'll have a hard time saying no to people. 
You'll have a hard time confronting people or pushing back. Criticism and rejection will be exceedingly difficult to handle. Your behavior is radically shaped by what you love the most. If you love having control in your life, and let's be honest, who doesn't? Then you're going to have a hard time letting other people make decisions. You'll want to look for ways to insert yourself into the lives of others, especially around the holidays. You may even be fundamentally distrustful of people. Your behavior is radically shaped by what you love the most. Now let's look at what happens when that is taking place in someone's life. Verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after their gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Now here's what happens. Watch this. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place. A high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. So Solomon goes out there and he builds a bunch of high places, altars, monuments in honor of the various gods of his wives. Our misdirected love exerts tremendous influence on our behavior, which results in monument building. Monument building. Monument building is the fruit of idolatry. And we continue to build impressive monuments today. There are hundreds of them. We probably don't see them as monuments. Let me mention just three. Well-behaved children. How in the world could well-behaved children be a monument? Well, all of our monuments, as we'll see, are things we want others to behold with awe and wonder. Mm. If your heart's desire is for people to look at your kids and think, wow, your children may be monuments. You've not raised them for the Lord. You've raised them for the applause of people. The fruit of idolatry. As is often the case, the problem with idolatry is, isn't so much what we want, but how much or why we want it. Let's think some more about the kids thing. Because children are not inanimate objects that we can just you know, chisel away at and mold, and, right? we, we don't have complete control over them. They've got a thing called volition. Okay? In order for them to become the monuments we want them to be, we can place on them expectations that in the end are too heavy for them to carry. Because if dad and mom desperately have a, have a picture in their head of what they want their kids to turn out to be, to be this glorious monument, any deviation from that will result in endless criticism from dad and mom. And you know what happens when that reach, reaches maturity? The kids are grown, and they have a resentment towards dad and mom. 
One more. Let me push this a little bit further with our kids. If they don't turn out like we had hoped, it won't just be disappointing. It'll be devastating. Crippling. Paralyzing. How about a second monument? Career. Now, just like children, work is good. A career is good. So how do I know if I'm fashioning my career into a monument? Well, all our monuments are things we want others to behold with awe and wonder. So if your heart's desire is for people to look at your life and your career and think, you know what so-and-so does. It's impressive, isn't it? Your career may be a monument. The fruit of idolatry. Additionally, if a specific kind of career is a monument in your head, You've got a picture in your head of what, what this ideal career is. If this is a monument in your head, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be tempted to pass up jobs you may be more suited for, or you will pass up jobs that you view as beneath you in order to pursue that career that in your head has become a prestigious monument. And as with all our monuments, if they're destroyed or they're taken away, we are undone. How about a third monument? Church activity. No. How in the world could church activity be idolatry? Well, uh, both the prophet Isaiah and our Lord Jesus said it this way. They both said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The people of whom they both were speaking were religiously active, attending church, participating in Bible studies, serving those in their community of faith. But underneath the external behavior were hearts spiritually diseased. I once saw this in a man who was a faithful attender of the church where I was serving on staff, not here. Uh, he went to every men's Bible study he could find. He attended every adult education class that was offered. He always arrived early, smile on his face, Bible in hand. But I later came to find out that he was a volatile man whose wife and kids had become his verbal whipping posts. His monument was a spiritual religious monument that served to prop up an outward-facing image of himself that would garner the approval of others and generate an internal sense of security. And all of that allowed him to sleep at night in spite of the devastation that he unleashed in his home. The fruit of idolatry is monument building, and we can make a monument out of anything, but especially some of the best things in our lives. So third, what is the treatment for it? What is the treatment for idolatry? Let's look at verses 9-11. to The Lord became angry. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord and the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. 
and we continue to read in that chapter that God ends up raising up opposition to harass Solomon. God made Solomon's life difficult through hostilities with other nations. And through that, we're introduced to a side of God that modern people, especially modern day Christians, can find offensive. When God declares Himself to be a God of love and mercy and compassion, we are fine with that. But when it comes to God declaring Himself to be a God of anger and wrath, we bristle at that and maybe don't even take Him seriously. Divine vengeance is very real. And there are compelling reasons not to abandon belief in it. On the one hand, there are biblical reasons not to abandon belief in the wrath of God. If we, if we want to move away from the notion of an angry God while at the same time retaining an authoritative Bible, we have to do some pretty heavy revisionist lifting. And I would say the effort is roughly comparable to Thomas Jefferson's attempt to scissor cut the supernatural out of the Bible. There are more than 600 references to divine wrath in the Bible. If we want to get rid of that, there's a lot of cutting that has to happen. What strikes me most, though, is not, um, it's not how frequently the, the God's Word speaks about God's wrath, but what strikes me the most is the absence of the embarrassment or hesitation or shuffling of the feet so often present in contemporary attitudes toward this doctrine. Modern-day Christians are prone to trying to do a little dance around it. When it comes up in the text, we back up, we can hear a beeping noise. Modern-day Christians are prone to dumbing down the wrath of God or avoiding it altogether. But the biblical writers don't. They at no point in time demonstrate an embarrassment or a hesitation or a shuffling of the feet as they discuss this. At no point in time do they do that. Why should we? So there are biblical reasons not to jettison the notion of divine wrath, but there are also cultural considerations to think about when it comes to the topic of divine wrath. Could it be that the air we breathe in our culture fuels a reticence to embrace this doctrine? I'm introduce you to a man named Miroslav Volf. If you remember nothing, just memorize his name because it's fun to say. Miroslav Volf. V-O-L-F. He's a Croatian. He grew up in the Balkans. And he lived through the decimation of the Yugoslav Wars. Many of you remember seeing that on television. It was a bloody and atrocious war. Wolf is now a theologian at Yale. Prior to that, he was at Fuller Theological Seminary. His life experience, having grown up in that, is very different than any of ours. Very different than any of ours. And he has written extensively on the goodness of God's wrath. And in this quote, does so with devastating force. This is what he says. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. 
To the person who is inclined to dismiss divine vengeance, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. See, Wolf is contending that a refusal to believe in divine vengeance requires the sheltered life of a quiet suburban neighborhood. Could it be the cultural air that we breathe has caused us to distance ourselves from this doctrine? So there are biblical reasons to retain belief in divine vengeance. There are cultural considerations to give. There are also psychological reasons to retain belief in divine vengeance. Becky Pippert um, has written very clearly and vividly about this. She wrote about this in her book, Hope Has Its Reasons. And I don't know of any other modern-day writer who's done so with this kind of um, clarity. Uh, In this book, she writes about watching a couple of friends of hers sink into drug abuse. And as she watched them do this, she began to be really reflective. This is what she wrote. She said, how did I feel? I was grieved and sickened to see the wasted potential. But I also felt fury. Everything in me wanted to shake them. To say, can't you see? Don't you know what you're doing to yourself? You become less and less yourself every time I see you. I wasn't angry because I hated them. I was angry because I cared. If I hadn't loved them, I could have walked away. The fact is that anger and love are inseparably bound in human experience. And if I, a flawed and sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. If God were not angry over how we are destroying ourselves, then He wouldn't be good. And He certainly wouldn't be loving. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. So in the story before us, God is angry. Why? We read it earlier. Look at it again. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. 
His heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. So idolatry incites the wrath of God. Idolatry incites the anger of God. Our misdirected love, which manifests itself in monument building, incites the wrath of God. And because our God is a jealous God, and that is jealous, that is, he requires single-minded devotion, single-minded affection for him alone, single-minded worship of him alone. The image created there, by the way, with, with this word jealous is the picture of a husband who gets angry when someone else competes for the heart of his wife or when her heart goes after other lovers. This is the picture that God's creating for us. Verse 11 again, since this is your attitude and you've not kept my covenant decrees which I command you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Now this is true not only of Solomon but every one of us as well. Every one of us. We have not kept God's covenant. We have disobeyed his decrees. We have disregarded his commands. Other people, other things have been the objects of our highest devotion. And for God to be a just judge requires that he tear the kingdom away from us. That we be the object of his just vengeance. This is reality. This is the bad news. But it sets the stage for the good news. Years later, there came a man who kept God's covenant perfectly. He obeyed every single decree. He lived out each command flawlessly. But what did he receive for it? Isaiah tells us, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds, we are healed. Paul puts it this way, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus kept God's covenant perfectly. He obeyed every single decree. He lived out each command flawlessly. But in the end, Jesus was stripped. He was humiliated. He lost the love of His Father. He was torn from His heavenly kingdom. Why? So that the kingdom could be given to His subordinates. You and me. This is the great exchange. It's the great exchange. Jesus got what we deserve so that we can get what He deserved. Divine vengeance for our many idolatries is a frightful prospect. But the exceedingly good news is that Jesus is our substitute. He's our shelter. He's our rescue. He's our salvation. He's our life. So the question is, is he the object of your highest devotion? 
Years ago, Christianity Today did an interview with a great Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, just prior to his death of cancer. At the end of the interview, Lloyd-Jones was asked if there was anything else he would like to add. To this, Lloyd-Jones said yes. He said, flee from the wrath of God which is to come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he wrapped up his final interview. If you haven't done that yet, why not respond to what you've heard today by turning Turning from those people and those things that have been the objects of your highest devotion and loyalty. Turning from those things and turning to the living and true God. And after you've done that, participate in the Lord's Supper. This meal is all about celebrating the great exchange. Jesus got what we deserve so that by faith we can get what He deserved. And if you've done that already... Be a model to other believers by demonstrating what a single-minded devotion to Christ looks like. And as you partake of these elements, let this time kindle your joy in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Father, whoever or whatever reigns in our hearts determines the whole course of our lives. There's a pantheon of idols clamoring for our heart's worship. Have mercy on us. Free our foolish hearts from giving anything or anyone the attention, the allegiance, the affection, the adoration that you alone deserve. May the gospel of your grace relentlessly expose and effectively dethrone all of these other empty nothings from our hearts. I pray that Jesus would grow larger and larger in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives, so there's less and less room for false worship. We ask and we pray these things in Jesus' most beautiful name. Amen.